It's Friday, July 29th, 2022, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. When it comes to the causes of climate change, no greenhouse gas is more impactful than methane. Far more so, in fact, than carbon dioxide by most measures. In the U.S., the second biggest source of methane pollution, after agriculture, is the oil and gas sector. But within that industry, it turns out the facilities responsible for the bulk of methane emissions actually bring very little natural gas to market. Newly published data show around half of all methane emissions in the U.S. are coming from so-called marginal oil and gas wells, those producing less than 15 barrels of oil equivalent per day. And even though about 80% of the nation's wells fall into that category, together they account for surprisingly little usable energy, only about 6% of all oil and gas produced in the U.S. Now, much of that natural gas being drawn out of the ground by those wells goes straight into the atmosphere, either discharged intentionally or more often simply leaking from ill-maintained and often unmonitored infrastructure. Among other things, that's an enormous waste of fuel at a time when energy prices are at historic highs and only going up. Collectively, these low-producing wells emit greenhouse gases equivalent to the output of 88 coal-fired power plants. But with the crucial difference that that vented methane is unusable natural gas and therefore it doesn't produce any power. So any way you look at it, even if you don't particularly care about global warming, this is a terrible trade-off. And yet, in gas-producing states like Pennsylvania, low-producing wells are typically subject to much lighter regulation in some areas than their more efficient counterparts. A study published last spring in the journal Nature Communications makes the strongest case yet for flipping that disparity. Two of its authors, Mark O'Mara and David Lyon of the Environmental Defense Fund, are here today to tell us more about what they found and what's to be done about it. Gentlemen, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Josh. Why don't you start by telling me some background on this study? What was the reason that EDF wanted to undertake this research? What were you hoping to find out? And you know, how does this uh, study differ from previous ones? Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks, Josh. Josh. Um, so over the past decade, uh, EDF has led and coordinated groundbreaking peer-reviewed scientific studies that have helped paint a clear picture of the uh, magnitude and the scope of the oil and gas methane emissions problem as well as the mitigation solutions, particularly here in the US and also now internationally. And so the current study on methane emissions from US low producing wells represent uh, in many ways a continuation of this science-based approach to assessing and finding effective solutions toward oil and gas methane emissions mitigation. And so based on previous research, and a whole host of other uh, measurement-based research in uh, peer-reviewed literature, we know that nationally, um, the oil and gas production sector is the largest contributor to total methane emissions from oil and gas operations, accounting for about 60% of the total. We also know that these emissions are often significantly underestimated in official inventories. And, and within the production sector, which consists of nearly 1 million oil and gas wells, most of the oil and gas production, so about 90%, comes from about just 20% of wells, meaning that we have a very large number of low producing wells that represent a rather small fraction of national oil and gas production. And so we wanted to understand better the uh, characteristics of these low producing wells 
where are they located, who owns them, but also importantly, how much methane do they emit and what is the significance of these emissions, especially as we are ramping up efforts nationally uh, to reduce oil and gas methane emissions. Uh, and so the study really sought to address these important questions. And we took an in-depth look at all of the peer-reviewed measurement-based studies that were conducted in recent years and analyzed this data. Uh, and this data were collected by over 50 scientists using well-established ground-based measurement studies, uh, measurement methods to, um, to quantify total methane emissions coming from a well site. Uh, and so we use this data to develop represent, representative methane emissions models that allowed us to characterize the total methane emissions from the national population of low producing wells. And so you could say um, our study is unique in the sense that it represents a synthesis of measurement-based data collected in previous years. And one of the challenges of doing this kind of research is ensuring that the results obtained are statistically robust, which must take into account the representativeness of the data used in the emissions models, uh, something which I think we, we, we demonstrate quite effectively in the study. Uh, a little bit more definition then. What are we talking about with low producing wells? What makes them fit that category? And you know, you said there's a there's a discrepancy between the amount that's actually produced and the amount that's emitted. How much are we talking about here? How much of, of the oil and gas production in this country is coming from these marginal uh, wells? Yeah, so we define a low producing well as a well uh, uh, which produces less than 15 barrels of oil equivalent per day. And so if this is a gas only well, that means uh, it produces less than 90,000 cubic feet of natural gas per day. Uh, and so one important point to note here is that we really focus on methane emissions from the well site and a low producing well site can have one or more well heads in addition to other equipment such as separators and storage tanks that are important sources of methane emissions. So nationally, these well sites account for about 6% of national oil and gas production in 2019, even though they represent 80% of the total number of actively producing oil and gas well sites. And it may be surprising to some listeners that the, the lowest producing sites are often among the highest emitting. Can you explain why that is? And is that the case if we're talking about conventional versus unconventional methods, um, different you know statuses, active versus orphaned or abandoned? Yeah, so the key result from our study is that low producing well sites emit about 4 million metric tons of methane emissions annually. And that represents roughly one half of the total methane emissions from all oil and gas producing wells in the US. Now, if these emissions were captured, it would represent enough natural gas to supply 3.6 million American homes for a year, or uh, the residential natural gas demand for the entire state of Ohio. So simply put, our study suggests these emissions are significant and they cannot be ignored. I should note that we are talking about total methane emissions from all low producing wells. So this is going to depend not only on the magnitude of methane emitted per well, but also the total number of wells. And so while we do find some very high emitting wells in the data, 
the vast majority of site-level methane emissions are actually not of the super emitted category when we're looking at how much methane is emitted per well over time. But there are so, so many of these wells, and so the accumulative methane emissions become important. I do think, though, that there is a second dimension to this high emitting behavior that we can talk about, and that is how much methane is emitted relative to how much methane is produced. And, and this is what we refer to as the percent uh, methane loss rate. And by this measure, what we find is that the low producing well sites emit on average about 10% of their production, which is high indeed. Uh, and the reason for, for this is that on average, methane emissions do not decrease proportionally with declines in production rates because there are going to be methane sources for example, leaks from valves, from connectors, from flanges, and malfunctions that occur regardless of how much gas is being produced. And so low producing wells, um, in many of the studies that we have looked at, um, we do find that these wells are prone to such le leaks, especially as infrastructure, infrastructure ages over time. So it's a minority of facilities that are disproportionately responsible for the bulk of emissions. Uh, looking at these super emitting wells, uh, where are you finding them in the country? How are they distributed across uh, the United States? Are they more prevalent in some regions than others? And why Why would that be? Yeah, so by definition, a super emitter is uh, you know, uh, a, a well site that emits a certain magnitude that is way, way more than the average emitted by well sites. Um, and that definition can vary, uh, but specifically for well sites, we're beginning to look at sites that emit, you know, on the order of 100 or so kilograms per hour or more. Um, and I'll invite my, my colleague, David, to comment a little bit on that. The challenge is that, you know, the behavior of this, uh, uh, this super meter behavior is very difficult to predict. Uh, because they occur as a result of things like malfunctions and so on. And so knowing exactly where they are located at any point in time is a challenge unless you have continuous monitoring occurring at those sites. Um, and so I, I would not necessarily describe the emissions from all low producing wells as super meters. Uh, our study, however, does provide regional methane emissions estimates uh, for low producing well sites in the Appalachian Basin, in the Permian Basin, in the Barnett Shale, the Anadarko region, and as well as the, uh, the Rocky Mountains region. And what we estimate is that the largest share of regional methane emissions come from low producing well sites in the Appalachian region, which accounts for about 30% of the total. And, and, and our work provides uh, two of the likely reasons for this. One is that there is a very large number, nearly 200,000 low producing wells in the Appalachian region. And this represents 30% of all the low producing wells in the country. Uh, and two is that there is a, also a very large number of really old, what we call ultra low producing wells in this region. And we have had at least three studies that have documented evidence of excessive but avoidable methane emissions from these wells in this region due to things like maintenance issues and lack of regular equipment inspection and repairs. 
if we can back up just a moment, and it may seem obvious that climate is is a major concern here, if not the major concern. But are there other issues in the mix that we should be you know, mindful of? And when we're talking about methane in particular, are there other notable impacts, whether that's uh, other kinds of environmental impacts or, or public health or, or, or others, in addition to the greenhouse gas problem? Yeah, I can address that. So yeah, so first there's a waste issue. So the emissions are a waste of natural gas that's not getting to the consumers. Um, and often the natural gas does have other pollutants in it. So particularly wet gas can have uh, VOCs that contribute to ozone formation and hazardous air pollutants such as benzene that can have local health impacts. Uh, we mainly study methane emissions since methane is a powerful greenhouse gas and really contributes particularly to short-term global warming. So there's a lot of um, really um, opportunity to reduce emissions quickly to reduce climate change. Uh, but in addition to climate to climate change impacts and health impacts, there are other effects like water and, and land resources, since the, the large number of marginal wells are covering a big fraction of land, so that land could be reclaimed to, to better ecosystem function and protect water resources. So with a, a better sense of the scale of the problem and some detail in what we're dealing with, what is the picture that's emerging as to what needs to be done? What are the interventions required and what resources are available to remediate those problems? And, you know, how, how, how do we pick and choose which of those projects should be prioritized? How do we fund them? All that good stuff. Yeah, so I think first what's needed is to plug a large number of these wells. Um, some of the wells you may be able to, some of the very marginal wells might be able to implement leak detection and repair practices that would reduce their emissions. But I think practically many of them are so low producing that the most cost-effective solution will be to shut in the well. Um, so there are federal resources available for plugging wells. The, the Biden administration recently announced $1.15 billion in funding for plugging orphan wells, including $104 million for Pennsylvania. And that's part of a $4.7 billion federal interagency effort to try to address abandoned wells. So I think there, there is a lot of, of available federal resources to start addressing this problem. The good news, though, is that the technology is coming along pretty quickly and becoming more affordable, I think. Are, are, are there some particularly promising solutions on the horizon? Uh, do some of them work better for than others for small leaks versus large ones? And we're obviously not just talking about remediation, but uh, catching the problems in the first place. So continuous monitoring as well. How do those uh, technologies play in? Yeah, so currently the most commonly used Leak detection approach is optical gas imaging with the infrared camera. So uh, a camera can see the normally invisible methane. Um, so that's a very effective approach, can see often small leaks, but is quite labor intensive because you have to drive to all the hundreds of thousands of, of well sites and inspect them um, with a person, a trained person with the camera. Um, so there's been a lot of, of efforts to develop new technologies that can screen wells faster. Um, so there's a couple different approaches, one being screening approaches that use things like aircraft or satellites to detect high emissions at a large number of wells at once. So there's a lot of progress being made at this front, and it's really good for super emitters. But as Mark mentioned, most of the, the abandoned and marginal wells, have even the, the higher emitters are below the range of, of the typical super emitter. So most of these approaches do not are not sensitive enough currently to see, see these low emitting wells. Um, but I, they are making progress. I'm hopeful in the next few years they'll they'll be able to at least see the, the higher emitting ones. 
Um, there is also advances in continuous monitoring. So these are sensors that are installed at a site and continuously monitor a, a site or multiple sites for emissions. Um, these also are, are kind of an emerging technology, a lot of outstanding issues, particularly how to distinguish leaks versus intentional emissions or emissions from off-site. Um, so you avoid false alarms, but again, a lot of progress is, is being made. Um, continuous monitors tend to be relatively expensive, so probably are going to be installed at the, the more expensive, you know, the higher production sites at first, but there are some approaches that can cover multiple sites. So I think one, one possibility is having some of these continuous monitors over a fields of abandoned wells that can really um, detect quickly when you have abnormal emissions coming from them. So there's a lot of work for Pennsylvania to do here, but uh, obviously the federal government arguably should have a role to play. That's uh, somewhat in question now in light of recent decisions out of the Supreme Court as to what authority EPA has and, and how they can exercise it. What do you see the federal government's role being in this solution going forward? Realistically, is this all on the states now and where does that leave us here in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so I think the Supreme Court ruling, it, it did constrain EPA's ability to act on power sector climate pollution, but my understanding, it does not affect the, the methane rules. So it, it's critical that the EPA continues to, to promulgate strong methane regulations. There was the Congressional Review Act early in the Biden administration that, that said Congress wanted a methane rule. So I think there is, you know, congressional authorization could be interpreted as, as moving forward. So I, I think it's it's really important that EPA has strong rules um, that address all wells, including a lot of these these marginal wells, and and is flexible in their use of technology. So particularly allowing a lot of these emerging technologies to be used um, when it can be demonstrated that they effectively reduce emissions. So I think uh, EPA has and and other agencies like Bureau of Land Management um, can really lead and and trying to have strong regulations and then. Uh, and they can also learn from from states like Colorado that have an advanced uh, had strong regulations. And then I think um, other states can really start to to promulgate these these regulations and start reducing their emissions. A minute ago, you mentioned the exorbitant amount of product that's being wasted as a result of these leaks. Do you think that, you know, at the moment, as energy prices are higher than they have been, and it looks like that's going to continue along with the cost of so many things right now. Uh, are we in an environment or approaching one where people will be more receptive to those arguments about efficiency and, uh, you know, controlling costs? I hope so. I mean, I've seen metrics before, things like half of emissions could be controlled at, at no net cost. But most of those cost analyses were done when gas was at like two or three dollars an MCF. So now that it's, I don't even know what it is at today, but it's been over nine, 10 recently. So yeah, I think with that much higher price, it definitely would incentivize operators to to get that gas to to consumers and not have it escape to the atmosphere. So this study completes a big piece of the puzzle in terms of the data and what it can tell us. Mark, where do we need to know more? Where is further study needed? And what are the critical gaps in our knowledge right now? Yeah, that's an important question. Um, so one thing I would mention is that even though you know we have done a terrific job at you know, consolidating the measurement-based data that's been, you know, provided in the past few years, there is still a need for uh, a comprehensive uh, data collection, uh, particularly for these low-producing well sites. 
we, we need to understand better, better how emissions um, are distributed um, by, 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 by region, because uh, there are going to be variability in uh, the regional composition of, composition of oil and gas. We need to understand better what are the tech, technologies that can best be applied to reduce these emissions. Uh, and those studies are critical in helping us mitigate methane emissions from these from this sites. There is also the uh, issue of, um, um, you know, how this pollution affects marginalized communities. Uh, you know, especially when we look at uh, uh, the co-emitted pollutants like VOCs and BTECs and so on, how do these, these emissions impact uh, you know, uh, disadvantaged communities, marginalized communities, and so on. I see this as an important sort of next uh, study that that will be critical in, in helping us further evaluate the impacts of pollutions from oil and gas, um, uh, not only low producing oil and gas wells, but also, um, you know, oil and gas operations in general. David, anything to add to that? Not with marginal wells, but I think this applies more to the super emitters. I think one of the really outstanding questions is now these short-term super emitters that these really high emissions that may only last minutes to hours and so are missed by a lot of these approaches, including aerial screening approaches that may fly by a, a, every month or so. So I think it's it's really important to understand kind of the temporal pattern of some of these emissions so that we can we can start fixing them even when they're not emitting when you happen to observe them. So you, you look for things like equipment malfunctions that could lead to these intermittent problems. And looking at the environmental justice piece and the disproportionate impacts and equity, is that something that EDF is looking at or, or will be looking at soon? Yes, we are starting to look at environmental justice impacts. And um, we recently had a, a project that looked at the, the locations of oil and gas wells uh, next to, to marginalized communities. David Lyon, Mark O'Mara with Environmental Defense Fund, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Mark O'Mara and David Lyon are researchers with Environmental Defense Fund. We've got a link to their recent study in Nature Communications on the PEC website. You'll find it in the show notes for this episode. That audio and those links are available along with the, all of our past podcast conversations at the PEC website, PECPA.org. That's PECPA.org. You can also subscribe to Pennsylvania Legacies and get all new episodes delivered directly to your mobile device using your app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Player.fm, and many others. Or you can still listen the old-fashioned way by pointing your web browser to pecpa.org and looking for the latest episode. Hope you'll join us for the next one. And until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Wallerson, and thanks for listening.